Let's pray together. Father, we come and we're like the song said, here in our weakness, bowing before your throne. Who's sufficient to be a Christian living in this moment? Who's sufficient to not just be a hearer of this word, but a doer of this word? God, we come to you needing this mercy, not just needing to show mercy, but needing to receive your mercy. So we're asking, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give it. You would give a mercy and a grace that would enable us not just to hear your word, but to receive it and to do it and to love it and to praise you in it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're living in the midst of unprecedented times when the church is having to ask the question, what does the church do? What is God calling us to do? We've been in a 2020 vision series in the month of February. We looked at the job description for leaders. In the month of March, we've been looking at the job description for the congregation. And now we reach a point, the final sermon in this series, where we're saying, what does it mean for the people of God living in the midst of a pandemic like this, what are we called to do? I was watching uh, a Facebook Live program from Ed Stetzer who was saying, this is not the crisis right now. The crisis is not that we've had to go online and do live stream services. The crisis isn't even that we've had to be sheltered in place. The crisis that's coming with the curve, whatever it is, is going to be ministering in the aftermath of people that are sick, that have lost their life, that have lost their job, that have gone through all kinds of trauma. What is it going to look like? to minister not only in the midst of this pandemic where people are also getting pink slips, but in the aftermath of it. Will the church be ready to be the church in what we're called to be? And what is that? What is Jesus calling us to do? I think we get the answer in one of his most famous parables, the parable of the good Samaritan. He tells this parable in the context of a battle, a test of wits between a lawyer, that is somebody educated in the Bible, in the law of God, and now Jesus. And in this setting, you wonder, does this educated expert in the law see this as an opportunity to challenge this uneducated Galilean who has no professional biblical training and put him in his place. Well, spoiler alert, if, even if you are an educated expert in the law, you don't take on the incarnate Word of God. You don't take on the one who is the eternal Word of God just because you have some training in the Word. This is not going to end well for this lawyer. And in this battle, there are two rounds. And in each round, you get the same format, the same movements. The lawyer is going to ask a question, and then Jesus is going to ask a counter question, and then the lawyer is going to have to answer, and then Jesus gives his conclusion. 
We see that in both rounds. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through round one, round two, look for the main point, and then we will apply it. So look first at verse 25, where in round one we get the lawyer's question. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. You notice right away, this is not a sincere question. This is a trick question, putting him to the test. He's laying out a trap. Now, notice he doesn't lay out this test by asking a trivial question, but by asking the most important question. Will Jesus be able to answer that, the thing that is eternally significant, It's not a trivial issue when he asks about eternal life. And what question would be more important in our day than this? Yes, you've seen the pictures of aisles of toilet paper, shelves that are just missing, no toilet paper at all, but have you seen the pictures at Barnes & Noble of shelves of Bibles being empty? People are asking this question today in the midst of this pandemic. They're they're thinking about life and death more than ever, and this is the question on many people's minds. What about eternal life? When everything else is shaken, when everything else is temporary, what do we do in the face of eternity? So this lawyer is asking that question about how to inherit it. What does he have to do? So now Jesus has a counter question for him in verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? This is a typical rabbi thing to do. Answer a question with a question. It reminds you of the old adage perhaps, why does a rabbi always answer a question with a question? Answer, why not? There's a question for you. Jesus is putting this back on the lawyer, seeing the test, the lawyer is trying to put Jesus on the hook, and Jesus asks a question to put the lawyer on the hook, to put him on his heels, to take over the questioning, to put him to the test. And the question is this, what does the law say? You're an expert in the law, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now you get in verse 27 the lawyer's answer. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer, this expert in the law, has quoted from the law, Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, this vertical love, love God with all that you have, And Leviticus 19.18, loving your neighbor as yourself. So this lawyer has identified that what the law is all about is loving God totally and loving your neighbor like you would want to be loved. And Jesus, looking at this, notice this is not for the lawyer, this is not hyperbole when I say love him totally love your neighbor totally. This says all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. This is total love. 
meaning towards God and towards others, everything that you think and everything that you say and everything that you do is totally dominated and defined by love. This lawyer has been put on the hook big time. So now Jesus gives his conclusion in verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The lawyers quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19, and now Jesus goes back to Leviticus 18.5 and says, this is what you're called to do. If a man keeps my statutes and ordinances, he will live. And now Jesus is saying to him, you've answered correctly. But this isn't, this isn't what puts him in the right to just answer the question rightly. This simply gives him the answer that he must do. And now Jesus says the devastating conclusion. All you have to do in order to live is to totally love God and your neighbor all the time completely. The lawyer is on the hook more than he ever thought he would be. All you have to do to have eternal life is to do that all the time. This lawyer probably thinking he's gonna have some subtle theological debate with Jesus doesn't understand that when Jesus brings this question to him, he's gonna put the lawyer's whole life to the test. He's gonna say, is that your understanding? Are you doing that? Do that and you will live. Probably the lawyer thinks that he's going fishing, that he's going to bait his hook, that he's going to have Jesus take the bait and he's just going to reel him in. But Jesus is like this, like taking your Zebco reel and then hooking a blue whale. Who's hooked now? Who has who? Jesus is now bringing the lawyer into his infinite ocean of wisdom and power, and the lawyer understands, I can't do this. So now we start round two. Look at verse 29. The lawyer has another question. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Notice that Luke tells us not just what the question is this time, but what the motive is. The lawyer has identified that to try to find life this way is going to be a dead end. There's no hope there. So he has to make the law more manageable. He has to try an evasive maneuver to get himself off the hook because he sees he's condemned this way. He wants to justify himself by asking, who is my neighbor, meaning, who do I not have to love? How can I find a, a statute of limitations in the law to safely identify who I don't have to love so I can manage my heart that doesn't want to love everybody? Jesus sees right through it, and this time doesn't just ask a counter question. He tells a story and then asks a question that subtly shifts the question the lawyer just asked. 
Here's his story and then his question, verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. If you just stop there, in verses 30 through 33, what Jesus is doing is he's laying out this story, a story in which there's a road that's real from Jericho to Jerusalem. It was often called the way of blood because there were perfectly placed rocks and caves for robbers to hide, and it was dangerous as people passed by like highway pirates. These robbers would strip people, beat them, leave them for dead. This is the road that this man is on, and he fell among these robbers. He's beaten, he's stripped, he's left for dead, and then he says... Now by chance. Do you hear the way that the storyteller Jesus is setting this up? It looks fortunate. By chance, it's a priest of all people, a priest. This looks fortunate. Somebody that we expect is going to help. It's like a, a spiritual superhero of their day, a, a priest who's probably been ministering in the temple and now leaving, sees this man. What luck! And yet, the priest that everybody would expect, surely the priest will help, sees him and passes on the other side. But then, a Levite comes along, happens to see the man, and in the same way, passes on the other side. A Levite would be somebody in the tribe of Levi, but would not be part of the family line, the priest line of Aaron. So he wouldn't be a priest, but he would be like a priest assistant. He would also be ministering in the temple, doing less important tasks, but ministering with the priests. So these two spiritual all-stars who you expect are going to minister to this person in need, if anybody's going to love their neighbor, surely it's going to be those working in the temple. They pass by on the other side. Two witnesses to show that Jewish religion is bankrupt. And yet, verse 33, where's the hero? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The most unlikely person to be the hero, to help, the most hated, despicable person to the Jews, Samaritans. Certainly, Samaritans are the least likely candidates to do anything good. And yet in Jesus' story, he's the hero. He's the one that does good. In our day, it would be like saying the good North Korean or something like that. It's just exploding their categories that a Samaritan 
would do these things. And notice, we sometimes say the parable of the good Samaritan. It's really the parable of the compassionate Samaritan. What was the difference between the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan? The priest and the Levite had hard hearts, closed their hearts. The Samaritan opened his heart, had compassion. But now you come to the focus of the story. And Jesus has shown you just with his economy of words. In verses 30 to 33, you've got 56 words to tell the initial part of the story. And then in verses 34 and 35, you get 50 words telling us what the Good Samaritan did, telling us what love for neighbor really looks like. Do you see it? He had compassion, so he went to him and he bound up his wounds, probably tearing his own clothes to make bandages, and then he puts oil on the wounds in order to soothe them and puts wine on the wounds in order to disinfect them. This is very up close and personal. Cost him his garments, cost him his his wine and his oil. And then he put the man on his own animal. So he walked, brought the man to an inn, took care of him the rest of the day, takes his clothes, his oil, his wine, his time, now his money. And the next day, he gave what was basically a blank check, take care of him, and whatever else is owed, I'll pay it when I come back. Fifty words to describe what love looks like. And now Jesus asks the gotcha question. Notice the shift where the lawyer had said, who is my neighbor? looking here to say, who do, who do I not have to love? Jesus switches the question from who is my neighbor to who was the neighbor? I'm going to let this story stand on its own as a definition of love to address your hard heart, and you're going to have to answer the question, who was a neighbor? You're going to have to say it was this Samaritan, but he's not willing to say it. Verse 37, you get the lawyer's answer. He said, the one who showed him mercy. The lawyer who's tried this elaborate, evasive maneuver, who's my neighbor? Jesus has told a story, changes the question, who was the neighbor? Now this lawyer is on the hook, and he has to say, the one who showed mercy, the one who didn't close his heart the one who had compassion. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is using this story like a mirror to say, this is you, lawyer. You're like the priest and the Levite asking the question, who can I safely ignore and go to the other side? Who don't I have to love? Jesus is saying it's not a question about the bare minimum, minimizing mercy and compassion. What don't I have to do? Who don't I have to love? Jesus has expanded the meaning of love to say whatever it takes. And he's expanded the meaning of neighbor to say whoever's in need. Do you feel how devastating this is to this man? Your neighbor 
whoever's in need. What do you do? What does it look like to love them? Whatever it takes. Now Jesus says to him, verse 37, you go and do likewise. What's the main point of the parable? Here's the way I would say it. What is the call of the Good Samaritan? God calls you to be a loving neighbor to anyone you see in need, irrespective of differences in race, gender, social status, with a love that will go out of its way to help a person in need, even if it is inconvenient and costly. Neighbor is expanded to say, whoever's in need is your neighbor. Love is expanded to say, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to meet that need. Now, when Jesus says, go and do likewise, this is doubly devastating. Not just because the the call has become so much bigger for neighbor and love and what all that means, but because this story is a mirror showing him his real problem. Why don't I do that? Answer, I don't have compassion. I have a hard heart a self-defensive heart, a self-centered heart. I am asking the question not who can I love, but who do I not have to love? Because I know myself to basically be not a loving person, not someone who measures up to this call to love God always with everything and love everyone that I see in need in a costly, inconvenient way. I'm not that type of person. So what happens in this story is you don't just ask what is the main point of it, but what's the function of it? What is it doing? Here's what it's doing. This story is actually killing self-righteousness. It's showing us the condemnation that the law brings. If you want to try to find life by doing the law, by loving God and loving neighbor, it is a dead end. That's what this self-righteous, self-centered lawyer needs to hear. What has to happen? so often is that we enter into the Bible stories thinking that I'm the main character here, that I'm the one. Just tell me what to do, God. We enter into the Bible saying, what is it saying about me? Here we're supposed to see we're not the good Samaritan first and foremost in this story. We're the lawyer. We're the priest and the Levite with a heart that would rather, when we see need, pass by on the other side. A heart that's often self-calculating, self-defensive, self-centered. That's who we are. And the lawyer has to come face to face with that and the dead end that it is to try to find life in the law. In other words, before you can ever enter the story as the good Samaritan, you have to see yourself as the lawyer and your self-righteousness needs to be slain first. This is a dead end. You can't 
do this. I can't love everyone that I see. I'll be paralyzed and I won't want to do anything because I think it'll cost me everything. If your eternity is based on your performance, you can never have assurance because you'll never measure up. I'm speaking now to people that maybe you're just finding out about Christianity. Maybe this, this crisis has made you tune in to wonder about what, what does Christianity teach? The last thing that I want you to hear is that what Christianity teaches is just do better, try harder, do more. That's not the message of Christianity. We can't even live up to our own standards. We fall short of our own standards, let alone God's standards. What you should hear first is that the path of salvation by works is a dead end. You will never do it. You will never do enough. You will never be enough. You need to see, first and foremost, with the story of the Good Samaritan, you need to see you in one corner and your sin in another corner and say, I can't win. I can't do what God is asking me to do the way I'm supposed to do it. If it's up to me, I lose. So the first thing the story does is it destroys our self-righteousness in order that we can be saved. Second thing that you need to see in this story after it kills your self-righteousness is that Jesus is the better Good Samaritan. The only person that has ever loved God completely with everything that he is, never had a rebellious thought, never did a rebellious deed, never said something that was wrong. The only person that always saw people in need and never walked to the other side, but always helped, always showed love. There's only one in human history, and his name is Jesus. He is the ultimate Good Samaritan, not just somebody on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, but came from heaven to earth and saw people who weren't good. This person that was left for dead in the story, he didn't do anything wrong. The Good Samaritan saw a stranger and helped him. Jesus saw nothing but enemies, those who had sinned those who had fallen short of his glory, those who had slighted his worth, those who said, I'm not gonna live for you, I'm gonna live for myself. Jesus saw them, and he didn't just take off his clothes and rip some and bandage wounds and put on a donkey and put in some temporary inn and paid a debt for a few days. Jesus came, saw us, in our sin, children of wrath, headed to eternal destruction, and he left heaven, took on flesh, and paid it all, not some. He didn't pay for a little while. He gave everything that he had when it was costly and inconvenient. He gave everything. What is your hope in this morning? Is it in some kind of trillions of dollars in stimulus? 
Or is it in the infinite price paid, not for stimulus, but for salvation? Jesus is the great Samaritan in whom you are to find your hope this morning. He paid it all. He gave it all. He did more. He paid more forever than the good Samaritan. You're supposed to see that you are, after being the lawyer and having your self-righteousness killed, you're to see that you're not the good Samaritan, you're the person left for dead that can't do anything to save himself, needing to be saved and see in Jesus the ultimate good Samaritan who comes and pays your debt forever. So in the first part of the story, you're supposed to see Here's me in one corner, here's my sin in another corner, and I can never win. Oh, in the second part of this, you're supposed to see Jesus in one corner, your sin in another, and see Jesus defeats your sin. And Jesus doesn't just come and help somebody temporarily fight off death. He dies and rises again and defeats death. He even is going to take away dangers, take away robbers, take away the, the, even the chance to get sick. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, give us this heavenly home. That is our hope. And then, the third thing that you're supposed to see is now that you have been saved, you get to come back into the story and not do this in order to be saved, but do this because you were saved. Think about this. If you were to try to love your neighbor in order to save yourself, that would be a mercenary thing to do. You're not really loving them. You're doing something to save yourself. That would not be love. That would be mercenary action. But once you're saved, once Jesus has paid it all, done it all, shown you perfect love and compassion, now when he says go and do likewise, you really can because your heart's been changed, because your whole life is different now. You can just reflect the love that you've received so you don't look at the story of the Good Samaritan and ask, what don't I have to do? Who do, who do I not have to love? You simply say, Jesus, thank you. How can I show others your love? How can I be like what I've seen in you? How can I be like a child of God? God is love. How can I be his child and show that love? Not in order to be his child, but because you're his child. What does that look like? Some of you have told me that in these days of crisis, you've had to ask the question, am I doing enough? Am I helping enough? What else can I do? And suddenly, this pressure builds and the guilt builds and you wonder, am I doing enough? This totally changes the question and now makes it not out of indebtedness or duty or guilt, but love. I wanna be like the Jesus who saved me so that what we're sharing is in Acts 16 when the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? 
What's our message? It's not be the good Samaritan. It's believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. How will they know about Jesus? How will they hear about it? I've given you a slide I want to show you now called Good Neighbor Bingo. Good Neighbor Bingo that enables you to put your faith in action, asking the question, now that we've been saved, now that we're a part of the body of Christ, how can we be the hands and feet of Jesus to our neighbors? I want to read through some of these. Use Nextdoor Facebook to reach out to your neighborhood. Find people who need your help. Donate needed items to local food shelf. Call and check in on someone who's isolated or quarantined. Chip in with others to give grocery gift cards, childcare, or cash for rent anonymously if possible. Pray for the sick and those vulnerable to infection around the world. Invite someone to the live stream Sunday service and then discuss it with them afterward. Pray for doctors and nurses putting themselves at risk to treat sick patients. Teach your kids about viruses and their bodies and immune systems. Learn with them. Subscribe to the Bethlehem Weekly e-newsletter. Support local restaurants by ordering takeout. Isn't it amazing just a month ago, if you did that, you were lazy. Now if you do it, you're a hero. Pick up groceries for someone who should not be going out. Leave a note with two or three neighbors. Video chat with someone who's isolated or quarantined. Email, call, or text people you know who might need help. Pray for the sick and those vulnerable to infection in your circle or relationships. Email, call, or text people you know who might need help. Drop off a care package to an elderly person you know. Donate blood. Send a note of encouragement to a local official. Sew masks for local hospitals. Or if you're anything like me, send a thank you note to those who do. Because if I sewed a mask, nobody should wear it. It would not protect you from anything. Offer to do some yard work or outdoor cleanup. Pray for leaders in your city, state, and nation. Bless someone in your household with an act of kindness. Write a letter or send gift items to residents at your local nursing home. Here's the challenge that we find in the parable of the Good Samaritan. If we're not in a hard-hearted way asking ourselves, what don't I have to do? Who don't I have to love? But we're asking the question, what can I do? What do I get to do now that my heart has been set free from self-centeredness and selfishness and I've been saved and I've received this love? What can I do? The answer is, as a church, let's fill in these squares. As many squares as we can cover, let's cover them. Let's be like the early church. In every age of the church's history, what we find is that in these days, when you have crisis, where there's great crisis, there's an opportunity for great witness. And like Eusebius, the church historian said, there are times in great crisis when the deeds of the Christians were on everyone's lips and they glorified the God of the Christians because we are the children of God set free from self-centeredness and selfishness, we're set free to love. We're set free to do these things with a heart that's not doing them to be saved, but because we're saved. And my prayer, it's a closing song, as we sing stronger, 
is that his name would be lifted higher as our witness stretches further. To everyone that we see in need, we're not asking, what don't I have to do? We're asking, Lord, as I bathe in your love for me, how can I show that love that I have received to others? While others are at home right now, maybe a shelter order in place, just thinking about how to get by, just thinking about how to pass their time, just thinking about the next thing they're gonna watch on Netflix. What if Christians, during this time, were at home dreaming about how to better love their neighbors? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Only you could take our hard hearts, our hearts of stone, that want to be evasive, that want to think about what we don't have to do, as if we're a bunch of scrooges wanting to do the minimum. Lord, I pray that in our thanksgiving that you've taken out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh, you've made us your children. Let us ask, oh God, by the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, who's my neighbor? Who do I see in need? And how can I love them? How can I do whatever it takes to meet those needs and to show and shine the love of Christ? And we don't do it because we're stronger, but because you are. In Jesus' name, amen.